The scripture text for this morning's sermon is from 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 through 18. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we have love for the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we thank you so much for the power of your word, and we thank you that even though you've given a weighty word to us today, that it's a word that we need to hear. And so for what you will do and for how you will do it now, we give you our thanks and praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Before I really get into it, I want to apologize to you for this half-a-head spotlight thing that's happening here. This was my fault, and we have a solution for it next week, but... I just want to ask you to join me in prayer that this will not distract us from what the Lord has to say to us today because the word before us is truly weighty today. It's filled with hope, but it's weighty. And so I pray that God would help us to to pay attention. And I, I just truly apologize if this is distracting to you. See what kind of love that the Father has given to us. See it. That we should be called the children of God. That we should be transformed from people who once were his enemies into people who are actually his family. See what kind of hope the Father has given to us, that one day he's promised us that we're literally going to see Jesus face to face, blazing in all of his glory, and we're going to be radically and eternally transformed into his image. See what kind of power The Father has given to us that he has allowed the Son to anoint us with the Holy Spirit so that we can seek purity as Jesus is pure. So that we can seek righteousness as Jesus is righteous. So that we could seek to live for the honor and glory of God in the way that Jesus lives for the honor and glory of God. Beloved, the Christian life is a life that is marked by an immense privilege, by immense hope, and by immense power. The Christian life is a life wherein we not only get to understand and admire God, but where we actually get to transform into the character, into the the image of the one who created us and saved us. We will never be God, but by the grace of God, we will become like God. And this is a privilege, this is a hope, this is a power that is inconceivable. When it comes to being like God in our deeds, in our actions, 
The primary way that the Bible speaks about this is by instructing us to love one another. So if you look at verse 10, John creates a pretty masterful bridge between the first part of chapter 3 and the second part. He writes, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. As I shared with you last week, to practice righteousness is to learn to live with regard for God. So righteousness is about behavior. It is about conforming to the, to the will and words of our Father. But there's something much more, there's something deeper to it. It's not just about behavior. It's about a heart that wants to be like God and honor God and honor the, the wisdom of God. So to practice righteousness, again, is to live with utter regard to God. Utter regard for his wisdom, utter regard for his words, utter regard for his purposes and for his promises and for his practices. To honor God is to glorify God by our way of life. And so with this in mind, John links the practice of righteousness with the love of other people because the love of other people is the primary way that we express our love for God in the world. We probably could say that worship itself is the primary way that we expect, uh, express our love for God, and, and that, that's true. But when it comes to our outward acting in the world, the Lord has said, love one another. This primarily is how you are to express your love for me. And so John goes in, uh, uh, presses in in verses 11 through 18 to talk about loving one another. And I want to say at the outset that those verses hang together and they need to be understood together. If you just read 11 to 18 quickly, you can see that they're deeply related to one another. But there's so much meat there that I decided to break it up into two Sundays. So this Sunday, we're going to look at verses 11 to 15. Next Sunday, we'll look at verses 16 to 18. But I just want to make sure we understand that this is a whole passage that hangs together. And next week, I hope to, to show us the dynamics there between the two sections of this text. But let's begin in verse 11. Meditate on John's words. He said, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. So first, notice that John says, This is the message that you have heard from the beginning. He's talking to the church in Ephesus and the surrounding areas. And when he says the beginning, he's talking about the first time that they heard the gospel preached. And what he is saying is that from the very beginnings of their hearing the gospel, they also heard this message that we should love one another. That's an incredibly important point. That shows us that the apostles and the early church, when they preached the gospel, they not only preached about being reconciled to God, but they preached about being reconciled to everyone else who has also been reconciled to God in Christ. When the apostles in the early church preached the gospel, they not only emphasize the vertical relationship between human beings and their creator, but the horizontal relationships between uh, human beings and each other. I am not saying that when the apostles first preached the gospel, let's say they pull up into a town and find a place to preach and just begin to preach. I'm not saying that they necessarily went into a lot of detail about loving one another, but I'm saying that it did not take them very long to dive deep into this fact that God did not just come to save individual persons, but to create for himself a people. And he is indeed saving individual persons, but as he saves persons, he forms us into a people. This is endemic 
through the way that the apostles preached the gospel. Reconciliation with God implies reconciliation with others who have also been reconciled with God. This emphasis should not surprise us because it comes right from the Lord. It comes from Jesus himself. You remember that one day somebody asked Jesus what the most important commandment in all the Bible was? At that time, we were talking about from Genesis to to Malachi, the way that our Bibles are organized. And Jesus, without giving it much thought, immediately quoted from Deuteronomy chapter 6. And he said that the most important commandment in all the Bible is to love the Lord our God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. The key to life is putting God in the center and loving him with all that's inside of you. Not just serving him, not just obeying him, having passion for him, loving him. This is the key to what it means to be a human being. But Jesus knew that there's a second commandment that is so closely related to that commandment that he could not only mention one. I think he felt profoundly obligated to mention two. He said that the second is like it. Another way to put that is the second one is very close. These, these do come in first place and second place, but it, it was almost a tie. The second commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. The second commandment is that as you love God and receive the love of God, overflow to other human beings and love them too. Let the love of others express the love that you have for God. So profound is this call to love one another that when Jesus was drawing near to the cross, and the, the time was, was now within hours. He gathered with his disciples in the upper room, and he got their attention. He made sure to look them straight in the eyes, and he said this to them in John chapter 13. He said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, and then here's the new part, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. Your love for one another is actually going to be central to your witness in the world if you have love for one another. Jesus was teaching his people that he came not only to save individual persons, but to form for himself a people. He came not only to reconcile individuals, but to create of us a people for the glory of God. With that, the 12 apostles, minus Judas, plus the apostle Paul, so we're still at 12, they not only understood this teaching in their minds, but I think they felt it very passionately in their hearts, and their writings are absolutely filled with an emphasis on the communal nature of the people of God. And we see this in their writings in a few ways. The first major way that I think this comes to the forefront is that we see their vision of the church in the metaphors they use to describe the church. And let me just bring three to our attention, the the most well-known of of all of the metaphors. First of all, Paul says in Ephesians 1 and then elsewhere that the church is the very body of Christ. Imagine that. Imagine that you're trying to write and communicate to people the nature of the church that Jesus is forming— and you're just looking for some metaphor to help them understand the the nature of what he's doing, and what comes to your mind is the relationship between the head and the body. And you're saying to the church, you are so intimately related to Jesus Christ that you are as if you are literally his body. And in fact, this implies that you're not so just so intimately related to him, but you're also that intimately related to one another, because a finger can't have existence on its own, right? A finger needs a hand, and a hand needs an arm, and an arm needs a torso, and so on and so forth. The body needs the body. 
We don't just need to be reconciled to God. We actually need one another. We are designed to be built together into a body. You are the body of Christ. Paul then says in Ephesians chapter 2 that we are the temple of God. Twice in Corinthians he says we're the temple of the Holy Spirit, but at the end of Ephesians 2 he just says the temple of God. This is a stunning thing to think about. After not only centuries, but millennia of time where a tabernacle and a temple were constructed where God could manifest his glory for the good of the nations. The Lord said the tabernacle is no longer necessary. The temple can be destroyed. There's no need ever to rebuild that temple because you, my people, are my temple. I will dwell inside of you. I will display my glory in you to the world. I will proclaim who I am through you. You are the temple of God. Think about that. Think about the intimacy that implies between us and God and the intimacy it implies between us and one another. Peter says we're a spiritual house being built together, brick upon brick upon brick. We are not only individual persons. We are the people of God being created by his grace. A third powerful metaphor, especially after uh, marrying the Krutzig family yesterday. <laughs> Such a powerful metaphor in my heart that the church is the bride of Christ. Or in Revelation 19, John calls us the wife of Jesus. So intimate. When the apostles, when the Lord himself is searching for metaphors to help us understand, he says it's like this. It's like you're getting married into the Godhead. You will never be God, but there is a sense in which you are so intimately related to God that it's like you're getting married to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And not only are you getting married to him as individuals, but as a people of God. There are other metaphors in the scripture, and I, I encourage you as you read the New Testament to pay attention to them. We're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people set apart for God. All of the major metaphors of the church in the Bible are communal in nature because they're trying to teach us something, that we were not only saved as individuals, but we were saved to be a people. So, beloved, love one another. Do you hear the message? See who God has made you to be, and in light of what God has made you to be, love one another. Value one another in the way that God values you. Envision one another in the way that God envisions you, and then act accordingly. With these powerful metaphors in mind, the apostles issue a number of commands to us in the New Testament. There's a category of commands in the New Testament that we call the one another commands, and by far they are the most predominant type of commands in the New Testament. The, the primary one another command is to love one another. It's actually repeated a, a number of times. But then there are over 30 other one another commands that come along to help fill in what this means. And so let me just give you a few um, examples. The apostles command us to, to welcome one another, to warmly greet one another, to open up our arms and embrace one another. Actually, some of you know that it says to greet one another with a holy kiss. We're in Minnesota. We'll leave the kiss part aside. But we'll give each other a fist bump or a hug or something like that. There's something more profound being said. Understand who you all are and greet one another in the light of who you are. That's what that's really about. The apostles tell us to instruct one another. So the Bible tells us that God gives pastors and teachers to the church to do things like I'm doing right now. But the vision of God is that we would all be growing in the grace of God and able to teach each other. And that's the hope for our church as well, that all of us would grow in maturity and have things to contribute to one another. 
The apostles tell us to comfort one another. They tell us to serve one another, to bear with one another, to put up with one another, to forgive one another as God in Christ forgave us, to admonish one another. They even tell us to rebuke one another for the glory of God and the good of our souls. All of these one another commands can be, can be summarized in that simple command. Beloved, we ought to love one another. All of these commands also flow from a vision of life in Christ that do not see us as singular individuals, but see us as individuals who are being made into a people for the glory of God. And this is why the apostles often use plural language to communicate their point. And I I hesitate to even make that point because it's impossible to see this in English, but I'm going to try right now to help you see this in English somewhere. So if you can keep a finger in 1 John, turn with me to Ephesians 4. There's just a little sort of laboratory in the first six verses of Ephesians 4 that help me to make the point that I'm making. And I, and I, want, I want to make this point because I want you to understand when you're reading the Bible, the apostles are most often using plural language, but in English we tend to assume singular language because we're individualists, but they were not individualists. So Ephesians 4, chapter 1. I therefore... A prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk. Now, if you were to just read that, urge you to walk, how would you read it? Would you read it as a direct command to you? Well, that in the Greek language is in the plural. It's saying, I'm urging you all to walk. And in fact, the verb walk in Greek is also in the plural. So plural language is being used. Paul is not just talking to us as separated individuals. He's talking to us as a people. In the light of chapters 1, 2, and 3, I urge all of you all, to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to which all of you all have been called, again, another plural verb, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, a plural verb there, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Eager, again, is a plural verb. There is one Spirit, there is one body, one Spirit, just as you all, all of you all, were called to the one hope that belongs to your plural call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all, but grace was given to each of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So you can see that plural language is being used to drive our thinking to a singular point, but that singular point is not me, that singular point is God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We have our unity in the singular God together because we are a people of God. I would summarize all of that like this. The gospel creates gospel community. When human beings come to have faith in Jesus Christ, they are united with others who have come to faith in Jesus Christ, and they become the community of God. They become the people of God. They become the body of Christ, the temple of God, the temple of the Holy Spirit, the bride of Christ, and so much more. Beloved, as believers, we are not just superficially related to one another. We are intimately and, in fact, eternally related to one another. And it's in that context that you should hear the command, love one another. See what God is doing. Value the people around you in the way that God values them, and then act accordingly. Paul summed this up, I think, in one of the most masterful statements about the church in the whole Bible, 1 Corinthians 12, 27. He said, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. That's important. You are the body, 
and individually members of it. So I am not saying that when people come to Jesus, we melt into the body of Christ and disappear. I'm not saying that. God saves individuals. God calls us by name. In fact, he knows us so well that it says he knows the number of hairs on our head. That is an, an, an unbelievable level of intimate knowledge of the people that God loves. But I am saying that when an individual comes to faith in Christ, they become part of something much greater than themselves, and their purposes are fulfilled in Christ in, through the life of the body. We are not a gathering of separated individuals. We are the people of God. So love one another. This teaching so deeply gripped the heart of the Apostle John that a, a later early church father, a man named Jerome, he was responsible for penning the Latin Vulgate version of the Bible. He lived in the 4th, 5th century. He had preserved and passed on a story about the Apostle John that when he was old and still ministering around the world, that he would go from church to church and he was so physically weak that he could not even walk in. And in those days, they didn't have wheelchairs, so people would literally carry him into the church. So just get this picture in your mind of people carrying the great Apostle John into the church and setting him up in the front. And then Jerome said that when he would get settled and the room fell quiet, he would look at the church, survey them, and simply say, my little children love one another. That was the heart of his message until his dying day. With all the strength he could muster, he lived his life to proclaim that message. Display your love for God. Display your reconciliation for God by loving one another. And I, I wanted to share that story with you because I wanted you to understand that the guy who wrote the words we're meditating on today preached this message until his dying day. It wasn't just words on a page. They were living words in his life. And by the grace of the Spirit of God in Christ right now, in a sense, the Apostle John is here with us right now, preaching a living word to us. Oh, beloved, may we learn to love one another. Since this command is so central to the gospel, John turns in verse 12, and it's quite a turn. Look what he says there. John says in 1 John three twelve, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. Now, that's a very heavy thing to say. That was a quick turn and a very heavy, heavy turn. As I was thinking about this and thinking about what it would have been like for the first church that read this to read it and for us to hear it this morning, I, I kind of even personally processed it this way. Like, John, I, I agree. I don't want to be like Cain. Don't want to murder my brother. But to be real honest, I had no plans <laughs> to murder anybody. So it's like John is saying, love one another and get out there and don't murder anybody. Amen. And I just, to be honest with you, I'm making a little bit light of it, but it felt heavy on my heart. I just like, like this doesn't make any sense. This is a very sharp turn. It feels like a, a very heavy turn. So I, I asked God for, for help to understand this. And over time, God really helped me understand. John means to use this heavy of a metaphor. He wants us to understand something about the nature of what happens when we do not love one another that I hope that he'll give us insight into today. And this is where the weight of today's message comes, basically from this time forward. The first thing John tells us about Cain is that he was of the evil one. That does not mean that Satan had a child and his name was Cain. It doesn't mean that. 
It means that Cain was so under the influence and the authority of the evil one that he acted as his emissary. He acted as though he belonged to the devil's family. He acted as though he did the devil's will. Even as Judas was inspired to leave up out of that upper room and betray Jesus to death on a cross, so Cain was inspired to kill his brother by the devil himself. Jesus said that Satan has been a murderer from the beginning. That's John 8, 8, 44. And I think part of what Jesus meant by that is that Satan himself was the one who inspired Cain to do like he did. From the very beginning, Cain has been inspiring people to rebel against God and to do the opposite of love for others. And why exactly did Cain murder his brother Abel? Well, John says that it's because Cain's deeds were evil and Abel's deeds were righteous. The author of Hebrews says that it was because Abel was living by faith in God. Abel was looking to God and seeking God and loving God. He was not perfect. He made offerings, which means he made offerings for his sin. He was not perfect, but his heart was toward God. uh, Cain was not living by faith. He was living by flesh. He was living for himself, and he tried to make an offering, but he made it in his flesh and not in the spirit. And I, I don't understand the details of how this worked, but for some, in some way or other, the Lord did not accept his offering. So if we could put it in a single word, why did Cain kill Abel? Jealousy. That's why. Spiritual jealousy. He saw the vibrant life of God in his brother, and he had this heart inside of him to snuff it out. He literally terminated the earthly life of a man because he didn't like what he saw in that man with regard to faith, with regard to his relationship with God. When a person is living in their flesh and for the devil, whether they realize that to be true or not, they tend to despise those who live in the Spirit and for the Lord. It's a natural, a sad but natural response of the heart. They tend to point fingers at others. They tend to accuse others. They tend to justify themselves and do everything they can to knock the other person down, to blame the other person, to put all of the weight on the other person. And eventually, they act out against that person in one way, shape, or form. Either literally, like Cain, they kill them, or figuratively, they just act out and crush their spirit. But really, what's really the difference? I mean, the difference between those two is just the degree of the crime. But at heart, it's the same exact crime. The truth of the matter is that they are in rebellion against God. And because they're in rebellion against God, they're so caught up in their flesh, they're so up under the authority of the devil and the influence of the devil that they can't see straight and think straight. But from their mind, their point of view, they're perfectly justified to do what they have done. And so they strike out. If you were to look back at Genesis 4, you would see that God pursued Cain before he did what he did. In a a very real sense, God got on his knees and looked Cain right in the eyes and tried to persuade him not to go in this way. God was so merciful to this man, and he would not listen. He would not hear. He plugged up his ears, he hardened his heart, and he did what was in his heart to do, and he took the earthly life of his brother. Cain did not listen to the wisdom of God. Cain did not listen to the words of God. Cain did not listen to the compassionate pleas of his creator. And I want to tell you that that's actually the heart of his sin against his brother. The murder was the fruit of something else. Cain had rebelled against God. He had disregarded God. And you see, this is the heart of Satan's influence in his life. 
Satan has been disregarding God from the beginning. Satan has been closing his ears off to the will and words of God from the very beginning. And he will do everything he can to inspire as many as he can to do the same. You might hear the word of God preached today. Devil, the devil will be here saying to you, just close your ears. It's just a bunch of garbage, just stuff for church. doesn't matter. doesn't have to do with you. That's the devil's work in our lives. Whenever we just want to close our ears to the wisdom and the will of God, we can be sure that we're following in the way of Satan. That's really the heart of what happened with Cain. He disregarded God, and therefore he acted out against his brother. Murder is horrific, but it's actually not the heart of what Cain did. The heart of what Cain did was to disregard God and then to disregard those who loved God. I really don't think that John thought his church or our church or most churches are filled with murderous people. I don't think he was literally saying, all right, love each other and go out there and don't murder anybody today. I don't think that that's his heart at all. I think he knows that every church is filled with people because it's filled with people who have the ability to stop listening to God and then start acting out towards those who are following God. We have the ability to harden our hearts toward the Lord and then actually do things that carry in them the aroma of death. We have that in us to do it. And John is trying to plead with us, don't walk in that way, beloved. Don't do it. Do not be like Cain, who murdered his brother. Do not do it. Now, that said, the main point John actually draws out of this little lesson is in verse 13, if you'll look there at what he says. He says, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. So the, the, the world is a very broad word. But here, I think John has a particular group of people in mind. There was a group of folks who rose up from within their church and had tried to divide the church over teaching false things about Jesus. That didn't work, so they left the church, but they kept on trying to influence the church away from God and away from each other. They were trying to get people in the church to change their beliefs and to leave the fellowship. They were trying to break both levels of reconciliation. They wanted both of those things. I think this is what John has in mind. And what he's saying to the church is, what you're experiencing is very hard. It's very painful when people you know come against you like this. It's one thing when a heretic rises up from a, some other part of the country and begins to influence the church from the outside. It's a whole other thing when you know these people personally and you care about them. It hurts. It's painful. Cain and Abel were brothers, not strangers. And in some sense, the people who were harming John's church were brothers, not strangers. And it hurts. And so John was trying to give them perspective and say, listen, from the beginning, this is how it has worked. People who are rebelling against God seek to lash out at those who, by the grace of God, are walking in the ways of God. So don't be surprised. Don't be surprised at all. I think he wants us to learn to love one another. I think he wants us to learn to have perspective on why some people in the world not only don't love us, but really are trying to seek to destroy us. And we're starting to see just the first drippings of what's about to become a massive flood as the powers that be in our country are going to turn against the church. And I, I have a, a very sober sense that we're about to have the kind of weeding out like we've never seen in the history of the United States where the wheat and the weed will be separated. We're about to experience things we've never dreamed could happen in this country. I really believe that. And when that happens, don't be surprised. This has been what's been happening from a very long time ago until now, and it has not disturbed the purposes of God in the world. Has it broken and grieved God's heart? Of course, of course. 
But has it thwarted his purposes? No, it has not. So let's not worry about the world so much. Let's hear the love of our Father. Love one another and do not be like Cain. Do not join in their way. This is a heavy word today. And I puzzled over it for a long time this week, just wondering how in the world do I understand this in my heart and then turn it into a sermon. Being a pastor is hard sometimes because not only do I have to, ch- to, to study a passage and understand it, but somehow I've got to bring a life-giving word to people who are bought by the blood of Jesus every Sunday. It's a great obligation. It's a great privilege. This week it felt pretty heavy. It's like, Lord, how do I... <laughs> How do I help people who I know some of you, I know some of the burdens that are on you. I was like, Lord, how do I help this be life-giving? And as I was riding my bike the other day in one of my last training rides, I just felt the Lord just give me such clarity. It's just tell, tell them, tell them that the aroma, the nature of murder is in every act of rebellion against God and others. Tell them that. Tell them that John used this metaphor on purpose, not on accident. He wasn't just grabbing for, huh, where's there an example in the scripture somewhere I can use? I believe John wanted us to feel the power of what God sees when people rebel against him and fail to love one another. He wants us to understand this. Our acts against one another are not innocent. Our acts against one another are not neutral. Our acts against one another are not nothing in the sight of God. The grace of God cannot be used to to justify rebellious acts like this. God wants us to understand that when we act out like this against one another, it has the aroma of death in it. Now, I don't know if the Lord was in this or not, but over the last week or so, we had a uh, family of small creatures die somewhere in, the, in our front yard, and wow, it was not the greatest welcoming home when you pull up into our driveway. Isn't that right, Kimmy? You come up into our driveway, I got out of the truck, and I was like, wow, something, something has gone wrong here. Something has died, and it's like, I mean, it was horrible. I'm making fun of it again, but it didn't feel funny to me <laughs> first time I got out of the truck, and we figured it out, dealt with it, whatever. But I haven't been able to stop thinking about that, and I thought, oh, what a grace it is that God gave me that experience while I was getting ready for this text. Because that stench you feel, you smell, you you can feel when something has died in the presence of your home. That's what God feels like when hatred starts getting loose in the midst of his people. And he's just saying, please, don't go that way. Trust me. Trust me, the Lord would say, there's a better way. Love one another. With that in mind, look at verses 14 and 15. We'll wrap this up. John says, We know that we have passed out of death and into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Again, very, very weighty words. So I want to summarize the principle that I see in these verses, and then I want to walk us through defining what is love and what is hate, and and then we'll wrap the message up for this week and come back to some of this next week. Here's the principle that I see in in these last couple verses. Love is the fruit of life, and hate is the fruit of death. Simple principle, but in its application, this is extremely profound. And we need to understand that this isn't just some abstract principle that applies to other people in other places. The Lord has got every human being that's here right now gathered to speak this message to us. Love is the fruit of life. Hate is the fruit of death. 
So let me just take a couple minutes and, and ask the questions, what is love and, and then what is hate, so we, we can be maybe a little bit clearer about this. Love is a very difficult thing to define. I challenge you sometime to just sit down in a coffee shop or something, try to write a definition of love. It's hard. It's very hard. Because at one level, love is very simple, but at another level, love is pretty complicated. And so at the end of the day, after I literally spent hours and hours thinking through this and praying through this, I don't have a concise definition for you. I just want to describe what love is for you in three ways. Three things about love that make it true love. First of all, true love flows from God and it's focused on God. Or maybe we could say true love flows from God and eventually in some way it flows back to God. God is the source of all true love. That is extremely important. Second point then. True love properly values others by seeing them through the light and the wisdom of God. True love looks to God to get a proper perspective on other people. So yesterday, I don't go to McDonald's that often. Yesterday was a rare day, and I hope rarer still, where I went to McDonald's twice in one day, and I got served by the same person twice in that one day. It's like, oh boy, what do I do with this situation, right? But it made me think, I, I'm a middle-class person just financially and all that. I think if I was not in Christ, it would be fairly easy for me to just look at minimum wage McDonald's people like, yeah, just give me my things. I would never say this out loud, but the heart of it is like peasants. So peasants, just serve me. Give me my hamburger. That's going to clog my heart and kill me. <laughs> you know, just minimize people. But I want to tell you something. It, this is so, I'm bragging on God, not myself. Please understand. I'm telling you what God did in my heart. When I saw that that same girl was about to serve me, who had served me in the morning, my heart was filled with joy uh, that she's making something of her life. She's young. She's made in the image of God. She got a job. She's earning money. She's contributing. She had a huge smile on her face. And I just said to her, I said, this is a rare day when I come to McDonald's twice, and you served me both times. And I just want to thank you. You're so kind, and thank you. Just came out of my heart. You know why this came out of my heart? Because somehow God helped me to see the value of the human being serving me, right? And just see a minimum wage worker. I saw a human being created in the image of God. That's what true love looks like. True love doesn't depend on the self. True love looks to God and says, Father, how do you perceive this person? Some of the people that the Gundersons are ministering to in Niger, they're forgettables in their culture. When I was in India, there's so many people that are completely forgettable from a cultural standpoint. And it's Christians that go there to say, no, we will take the unlovely ones. We will form organizations to bring them in and grow them up and help them to know Christ. We will invest in them because they have been made in the image of God. True love sees as God sees. We listen to his words and his wisdom and, and then we see properly. Third thing. I find this principle very, very helpful. With that in mind, true love seeks the highest good of the other for the glory of God. That's what true love does. Trust me, that's an important statement right there. True love seeks the highest good of the other for the glory of God. Let me give you a couple of examples why this is such a helpful principle. Because love is complicated in its application. Sometimes love does not feel like love. Sometimes love does not look like love. Okay, now I shall give you two examples. In 2 John chapter 1, I believe it's verses 9 through 11, he says about these teachers who have, his words are, they've gone on ahead of the teaching of the gospel, they've forsaken it. He says, do not welcome them into your home, do not even greet them. 
He's not saying don't say hello to them. He's saying do not treat them as if everything is okay when everything is not okay. He's telling the church to break fellowship with these people. Why? Because their highest good will be found in breaking fellowship in order for them to wake up and understand how serious what they were doing was so that fellowship could be restored. They might not have felt loved in the moment where people wouldn't even greet them or welcome them into their homes, but they were being loved because their highest good was being sought. In Titus 3.10, Paul says, warn a divisive person once, warn him twice, and then have nothing to do with him. Think about that. Three strikes, you're out. Jesus said, don't forgive people seven times, forgive them 70 times seven times. So what's going on here? Is Paul saying something different than Jesus? I would just say these are two different situations completely. When a person comes to us with a heart that's grieved over their sin and they're confessing again and again and again, maybe even the same sin, the same error, the heart of Jesus would say forgive them because that is seeking their highest good. This will lead them to a place where they will know the redemptive grace of God. But if a person is acting divisively and they will not respond to loving rebuke, you can know that something is in their heart that's not right and you must stop them because divisive people are like cancer in the life of the church. And the only way to seek that person's highest good and the church's highest good is to stop the cancer. I find this principle so helpful. When I value people according to the words and wisdom of God, then what love looks like is I seek their highest good. I don't think that automatically gives me all the answers to what I'm supposed to do in every situation, but it's a very helpful situation or or principle. Maybe right now you're wondering, how should I love so-and-so in my life? Just think to yourself, for the glory of God, how could I work to seek their highest good? In its application, love is complicated because of sin. But I think that these principles will help us a lot as we look to not be like Cain and to love one another. So then, let's turn to hate now and let's see what hate is. And I think it's just the polar opposite of love. Hate flows from the self and it flows to the self. It's all about me. I will tell you that it's not about me, but it is all about me. That's what hate is. Hate is profoundly self-centered and self-exalting. And that's why it's right to say that it's intimately related to who the devil is and how he operates. The heart of the devil is that he worships himself more than the Lord. And he seeks to exalt himself over the Lord. And then because of that, he acts out against other people. Hate is self-exalting. Third thing, hate seeks the highest good of the self with little or no regard for the other. It's the exact opposite of love. But here we also have to be wise. Because sometimes hate doesn't look hateful. Let's suppose somebody makes a million-dollar donation to our church and wants us to build a big building and prosper a bunch of ministries and everything. But the truth of the matter is that they don't care about the gospel or the advancement of the church. They just want to get their name on the building. They want to get some recognition. They're actually living for themselves and not for the Lord. That is not a loving act. That is not a kind gift. That is self-worship, it's self-exaltation, and if we were to accept that gift, we would be joining them in their self-worship. And so we could not, if we understood the dynamics, I don't think we could accept that gift. Hate can be complicated too, because it can appear good. Or let's say that a person lies to another person to get something that they want, or to produce some particular end. 
and they feel like they've succeeded. I just told a little lie and I got what I wanted. But you didn't succeed because you just used the other person to advance your own ends. You, you use them to exalt yourself instead of looking to God and seeking their very highest good. Hate is simply the opposite of love, but it can be complicated. We'll talk about this more next week. I want to give more examples next week. But I hope that these basic principles will help. So with that, let's look at verse 14, and we'll wrap up pretty quick now. John says, Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. And again, I just want to say to you that I think the reason John wrote something so heavy is that, that every one of us who hates is like a murderer, is because he wants us to understand the weight of our actions against God and against others. So, beloved, a choice lies before us today, and it's a very serious choice. Are we going to worship God and love others, or are we going to worship ourselves and hate others? Are we going to worship God and seek the highest good of other people for the glory of his name, or are we going to worship ourselves and seek the highest good of ourselves for our own satisfaction and our own desires? Well, next week, we're going to press into the source of true love and the practicalities of it. But for now, I just want to let this choice hang out there. We have a choice to make. Shall we listen and love or shall we harden our hearts and hate? I imagine that if the Apostle John could be with here today, with us here today, we have new technology. So just imagine with me that somebody rolls him down one of these hallways in a wheelchair and they get him up here and he's weak and he's frail, probably bent over a little bit. I hand him the microphone, and in his frailty, he looks up and he surveys everybody to nourish his love for the body and to get our attention. And when the moment is just right, he looks to us and simply says, my little children love one another. Father, I pray that you would help us to understand and to receive this message today. I pray that you would come now and work with power in our lives, and for what you will do, I give you my thanks and praise. In the mighty and merciful and matchless name of Jesus, amen.